Well, I don't know about you all, but my family has been locked to the TV for much of the week watching the Olympic Games, making ourselves suddenly sound like we know all about sports like the skeleton or curling, these events that pop up every four years that are such an interesting learning experience for us. My husband and I have marveled at the mogul skiers and wondered at what age they get their first knee replacements. <laughs> Most of us smile, right, when a bright-eyed 20-year-old hops up on the podium after working so hard to accomplish a task, and they win that coveted, beloved gold medal. And of course, it's even more exciting for us, you know, when it's an American, and the American flag drops down, and we hear our national anthem, there's a little bit of moments of, of national pride. One of my children, my seven-year-old, said to me after watching an American win an event, he said, well, Mom, does this mean we're the best people in the world? <laughs> I said, no, buddy, we just, we just want a sport, that's all. <laughs> There's a moment, right, in athletics that can quickly slip into pride and arrogance, Right? And it's even more beautiful, I think, at times in the Olympic Games when we don't see that happen. There is an American snowboarder by the name of Sean White who was expected to win his third gold medal this year. And he didn't have the run that he thought he was going to have. And after his event, had to give a big hug and a big celebration to a young Russian boy who won that gold medal, who said that Sean White has, had been his mentor and that Sean White had taught him all that he knew about snowboarding. And the Russian kid couldn't believe he won it. Sean White couldn't believe he had lost it. And these two men embraced each other on international television. And you know that White was upset and the Russian kid was excited. And they had this great moment of congratulating one another. They put pride and arrogance aside and celebrated this moment with one another. It's rare to see moments like that. Pride can so quickly disintegrate into arrogance and into the sort of selfish activity that Paul is talking about in our text for today. My husband once coached a youth hockey game for seven and eight-year-olds, and after the game was over, one team refused to shake the hands of another team. They took all of their seven-year-olds and turned their backs onto our team because of pride and arrogance. This happens throughout our lives. We are tempted toward these behaviors. And at the church in Corinth, pride and arrogance began to take over the life of the congregation. C.S. Lewis once said this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Proverbs 16.8 tells us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. It's a church in a booming, highly influential city that at the time controlled trade between Italy and Asia, Roman culture mixed with Greek history, 
mixed with multiple religions, ethnic groups, and social groups, combined together to make a very cosmopolitan urban center. It was a fast-paced city known for its loose morals. Gordon Fee says that at once Corinth was the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. And in this city was Paul's young church trying to find its way through this culture. And he wrote this church a series of letters trying to equip and encourage and empower them to make good decisions for the kingdom of God. And the temptation in Corinth of the Corinthian church was to sidle up up against all of the prevailing philosophies and theologies of the day. It was to puff themselves up and make themselves sound special because they followed certain teachers and they subscribed to certain traditions. And in the Corinthian church, there were different Pastors, different communicators, a multi-staff church, just like so many churches across our country today. And what was happening in the Corinthian church is that that wide variety didn't bring them together, but it was becoming divisive. And Paul had spent time there, and some of them were saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul, and, and I don't agree with what you who follow Apollos are saying. Peter also played a role in this church, and there's another section of text where they talk about different people following Peter. And Paul is so frustrated, because for Paul and for God, it was one church. And Paul is so angry because what was happening is they were acting like the people of their culture, chasing after what looked good and what sounded good to them and taking great pride in the people that they were following instead of the God who had given them those people and who had given them their church. And Paul basically says to them when he's talking about meat and milk and solid food, he says, why are you all acting basically like big babies? Remember years ago, Greg Ogden spoke about this text. He said, why are you acting like teenagers wearing diapers? Why are you acting like this? You know, all of you have the spirit of God in your lives. You are Christians. You are church folks. Why are you acting like people who don't know the spirit of God? He says, you know, I can't address you as spiritual because you are worldly. The Greek word that they're worldly simply means fleshly which means you're acting out of the desires of your flesh. You're acting out of your your desires to look better than others, to puff yourselves up, to one-up one another. He says, you're so worldly, I have to address you as such. He says, you are folks who should know the thick, rich life of faith, the meat of faith, and yet you're acting like mere infants that I have to give a little bit of milk to. You know, and what's ironic is what they thought about themselves is that they were spiritual giants. You know, this statement from Paul would have been a slap in the face to them. Their pride came from the fact that they thought they were on their religious high horse, that they had achieved and that they had arrived. And Paul says, you know, you know better than this. You know better It's like a parent who may say to an adolescent, why did you come home two hours after curfew? You know better than that. I can't trust you with the car or the big things because you can't even handle coming home on time. 
Paul says this is basic stuff of faith. We do not divide against one another. We rally together. D.L. Moody once said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Paul knows this. And Paul knows that life in Corinth is not easy. And if the church is to be a beacon of light and hope to the world, the folks who represent God cannot be divisive. They cannot be quarreling amongst one another, and they cannot be quarreling with everybody in the world. There needs to be a community that acts and behaves differently. And the Corinthians were boasting in individual personalities instead of their connection to Christ. They were worried about how they looked. They were concerned with their own image instead of the image of God. You know, and this, this can happen for all of us in whatever we do in our lives. In our workplaces, we can divide against one another. In our own church, sometimes we can divide against one another. You know, we work very hard as staff to remember this is one church you know, there's a whole group of people down the hall that listen to different music, and, and we all do different styles of worship. But the thing that God wants us to know is that we're always one in Christ. This happens beyond the walls of this church. There are over 200 denominations throughout the United States and Canada alone. That doesn't count the 35,000-plus churches that call themselves independent, right, like ours, that don't subscribe to a particular denomination. You know, often what is known about the church of Jesus Christ is that we fought and we couldn't figure things out. And so we, we split up and we went separate ways and, and we moved on. You know, often when people are asked about the church, the first thing that comes to mind isn't, well, that's a group of really united people that love being together with one another. You know, often it's something much more difficult. And what happens is commonplace. It happens because we're different people, right? Anne Lamott once said, of course everybody thinks their opinion is right. If they didn't, they'd get a new one. <laughs> you know, to be unified is not to say we all have to agree with one another 100%. We're different people. But to be a unified church like Paul is calling the Corinthian church to do is to figure out how to live well in community and be unified with one another so that a watching world that is fractured and divided and broken cannot help but look onto the community of Christ and say, oh, I want to be part of that. They're all different, but yet they get along in the name of Jesus. Donald Carson is a brilliant theologian, and about this text he says this, what binds us together is not common education, race, income levels, common politics, nationality, common accents, jobs, or anything else of that sort. He says Christians come together not for these things, but because they have been loved by Jesus himself. He said at times we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We come together for the sake of the church if the church can't model unity to the world, who will? You know, when we leave the church, our world is not going to do us any favors in unifying us and unifying different circles toward one another. Whatever side of the political aisle you find yourself on, it's a mess. You know, our social systems are divided between the haves and the have-nots. There's disagreement and division over education, immigration, the environment, and more. 
you know, closer to home, we're often divided against ourselves. We find sometimes enemies in our own homes, marriages that have divided and splintered and will not come back together. You know, parents and children often have, of course, a natural built-in division as children grow, but sometimes that division follows them long after adult children have left the house and adult parents find themselves divided against adult children. We turn on our television and good ratings and good TV are reality shows and courtroom dramas where people are divided against one another. So how does the love of Jesus make itself known in the world when this is the reality? Now, this is why Paul gets very, very excited in this text. The language, the original language here is very strong. Paul is incredibly frustrated. He's like, look, the whole world is falling apart around us. You, you church, love one another well. Get to know one another better. Bond together. Come together so that you can model to a fractured world what wholeness and unity and oneness in Christ is like. When I studied in seminary, we, we talked about the future of the church. And I remember one class we were in that you know, the professor had pretty much just set his notes aside and sat on the stool up front. We were sort of having this candid conversation about the state of the church. And it was years ago, but at the time there was some scandal or something in the news. You know, and we all just sat there asking him, we're like, you know, with all the problems in the church, with all the division, with all the scandal and the strife in the church, one of the students said, he goes, is it worth being a pastor? Should we even bother with this? You know, should we go be bankers or lawyers or something? What, what else can we do? And our professor got choked up, actually, and said, friends, he said, it is a mess. The church of Jesus Christ often is messy. He said, but I know of no other institution or organization on planet Earth that when firing on all cylinders can get it right and do good and justice in the world the way the church of Jesus Christ can do. He's like, you have to go do this. He's like, it is, it is the answer to the pain and the injury and the suffering in our world. And this is what Paul is getting at in this text. And as he gets further into it, he actually breaks it up and starts talking to them about all these different metaphors that they can use to find their way with one another. And he takes a metaphor from the family life. He takes a metaphor from agriculture, right? He says, you know, everybody's planting the seeds. God's the one that's sowing them. He takes a metaphor from agriculture and he talks about everybody being bricks of one building. And it's interesting, the medium through which he, he does this, you know, he, he makes an example of his very message. He says, look, some among us, right, <laughs> are farmers, and some of us are builders, and, and some of us focus on families, and, and what we all have to do is build the church together, build unity together. He says later in Romans 15, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, Romans 15, 7. So what if the church could get it right? What if we could get unity together in our own house? And what if we could model that unity to the rest of the world? What if, because we were unified and because we received love and grace from one another, what if the natural outpouring of that would be love and grace and peace to the rest of the world? That when we met with people in our culture and interacted with them, they experienced us as people of great peace and of great grace. I mean, all of us have done this, right? Have you met somebody who you're like, man, 
That's, that's was just a wonderful person. It felt good to be in his or her presence. And sometimes we don't even know why. We just, there's people whom it feels good to be around. And, and often it's because the spirit of God in them. And it's because they've done the work internally to be that person externally. And again, this is what Paul wanted Corinth to get right. Do the work to be unified together so that we can go out. You know, I've been here at Christ Church for over a decade, and I have experienced so much wonderful love and grace here. And I know for myself, it is in part because I've experienced so much goodness here that I can go and have the energy and the peace to be that goodness to other people. Now, we have that. So how do we bring that to others? One of the ways we can do that is to be known for what we are for, not what we are against. I'm quoting um, our good man, Dan Meyer, here, who said this once to us as staff. As we engage with the world around us, how are we known for what we are for rather than what we are against? Understandably, there are things we are against as people of God. There are things that are wrong, and there is injustice in this world, and, and we are not to go soft on it. But at the same time, often we lead with the sword, right? And often we're on, you know, the defensive. How do we lead with the fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5? Love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, humility, self-control. How do we come to our world and find those common things with people and say, you know what? I may not agree with you 100% here, But we both agree that love is important. We both agree that justice is important. How do we work together to bring those things forward? Another thing that Paul is saying here is that the community itself is, as we've said, the key witness. The other text for today from the gospel, from the lectionary, is actually Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he preaches there about he takes the, the, the commandment, thou shalt not murder, a step farther. And he says, you know what, forget that. That's, you know, most of us can subscribe to that. How about let's not be angry at one another? He says, let's be reconciled with one another as quickly as we can. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversaries so that as a community, we can bring together love and peace to the world. Another thing he tells us is that we need to know where true power lies. In this text, what Paul is saying is, look, it doesn't matter if it was Apollos or Peter or or Paul who said things or did certain things. He said, what matters is that all of the power in that comes from God. And he uses a metaphor from farming. You know, you can do only so much to get the soil ready. And there is a lot to do to get the soil ready, but ultimately it is up to God to make it rain, to make the sun come down, and ultimately it is God that makes those crops grow. The power does not come from ourselves. The power comes from God. We are workers and laborers in his kingdom, and we must remember where the power comes from. You know, Genesis 1 You know, God created throughout scripture. We're reminded that God is the creator. He is the power. He is the reason church works and life works. He is the reason for joy and peace and justice and hope. And we are simply laborers in his kingdom, remembering where the true power lies 
takes the glory off of ourselves and puts the glory up to God. You know, it's interesting in sports. I always wonder, did they mean that or not? You know, often you'll see an athlete after they do something, sometimes score a touchdown or whatever, and they'll point up to heaven. You know, sometimes I think that's just a show for TV. (laughs) But I'm sure that for some of them, there's a point at which they're giving that glory to the Lord. And so where does the power that you know lie? Does the power lie in God or does it lie in ourselves? And finally, you know, one of the things that Paul points out here is that when we struggle, we just return to the milk, right? To the baby food. And yes, Paul means it here in a pejorative sense, but there's also something comfortable about being able to go back when it gets complicated. Now, as a mom, when my children used to have a a tantrum and and a terrible time when they were toddlers, if you gave them a warm, sippy cup full of milk, it was like instantly everything calmed down, right? Rarely will you find a mom who doesn't have a sippy cup full of milk with her somewhere. It calms us down. And when we find ourselves acting prideful or arrogant or aggressive toward one another or toward the people that we love, Often that's because there's something we're afraid of and fear is driving us often toward those behaviors. And what we always have the joy of doing is returning to the milk, returning to the basics, remembering that God loves us and he created us and he gave his life for us so that we might have life. And we can just say that to ourselves over and over and bring ourselves back. This is what Paul's doing. He's calling that back down. He's saying, look, remember the basics here, right? The power is God's. You didn't do this for yourself. So just go back to that and be unified and remember what it is that draws you together so that you can be the light of Christ to the world. I had come across a news story earlier this week the story about a prom that took place last year in 2013 in a small town in Wilcox County, Georgia. And in Wilcox County, Georgia, they have a public high school, but during prom season in Wilcox County, the school itself does not offer a prom. There is a prom for the white students that's privately run, and there is a prom for the African-American students that is privately run. And the school itself does not sponsor a prom. And this has been a tradition that has gone on as long as they can remember in this town. And this one particular year, last year, there were four girls. Some were white and some were African American. And what they wanted to do was go to prom together. They wanted to go to prom together, and their community and their culture wouldn't allow it. It didn't provide a way. These girls had been best friends, these four girls. They had slept over at one another's houses. They had been on one another's sports team. They had cheered each other on. And like so many American kids, they just wanted to go to a big dance together with their friends before they left high school. And so they decided to start a third way to do prom in their town. And their school wouldn't sponsor it. And the African-American prom wouldn't sponsor it. And the white prom wouldn't sponsor it. So they started their own prom together, an integrated prom, so that they could all come together in unity. They created a third way forward to model what togetherness looked like to the fractured and divisive places that were all around them. And when I read that story, I thought to myself, isn't that, isn't that the church, right? 
There's so much division and there's so much anger all over in our world. Isn't that what the body of Christ is to do? We're to bring people together and point to the better way, the third way, the other way. They're all wrapped up in their different ways of doing things, and the community of Christ is to point to the better way. And that integrated prom was by far, according to media reports, the best prom in the town. That there was grace and compassion and togetherness and American adolescence at its finest. And when I think of what Paul had said to the church in Corinth, that these are the reasons he said it, so that we can come together and move our world toward unity, so that we can model out. Did all of those kids at the prom love each other? I'm sure they didn't all love each other. I'm sure there were still moments where there was tension and whatnot, but they came together for the greater good. Paul writes and takes, and, and takes so much torment on behalf of the church of Jesus Christ because he believed that the church had to get it right. He says later in Colossians, he says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you, the message of Christ. He says this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, for all of us, for the whole world. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And he goes on, he says, so we tell others about Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us to present God to them. And then Paul says, this is, where I, this is why I work hard and I struggle so that power, the power of Christ may be at work within me. This is the reason for church, is what Paul is telling us. And so as we go about our lives and we go about our week, let us take time to think about all of the places in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our schools, where we might find ourselves at at odds with someone else. And while we may still say, I disagree with you, and there's a good reason for that, but I love you, and I want to work toward peace, I want to work toward the common good together. I want to be known as a person of unity. I want to be known as a church that does good in the world on behalf of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you give us gifts, that you give us hearts and minds that think and that pray and that wrestle with theology and that know you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the universe the giver of salvation, the giver of life. So, Lord, help us to model life for one another. Help us to live well together, to live in harmony with one another so that we might be the church of Jesus Christ in the world who models grace and justice and peace and mercy to a world that so desperately needs those things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.